The Old Pilot's Plain Tales, RAF Form 414, Volume 24. After I landed my aircraft, I climbed out of the Hornet with the cold realisation that I might have flown my last sortie. The spinning sensation had ceased, and the sortie had gone beautifully. It was almost as if it had been a bad dream. I got through the debrief and the rest of the day went fine, but in the quiet of the evening, after the kids were asleep, I told Jilly what had happened. My worst fears bubbled up and I wanted to pretend everything was alright, but deep down I knew otherwise. We talked it through, but we both knew I had to face it. I picked up the phone. The senior Air Force doctor on the base was a scuba diving buddy of mine, so I rang him at home. I apologised for calling him so late, explained what was going on and told him that if I didn't tell him now, I might not want to in the morning. He was very professional about it, told me to come over first thing and then drop the bombshell that I had expected. Just so you're clear, he said, you're grounded till further notice. I actually slept quite well, considering. I cleared my conscience and put my problems into the hands of the professionals. When the sun rose and I wandered over to the station medical centre, I had almost resigned myself to a life without flying. There were other worthwhile jobs in the RAF. Oh, come on, who was I kidding? I was invited in to see the doc, and after explaining my tendency to walk into walls and the spinning sensation that I had suffered, he asked me to sit up on a trolley bed. Taking control, he lay me back prone and then turned my head towards him. Immediately, his surgery set off spinning around me faster than I could ever roll a fighter, even a little gnat. Instinctively, I shut my eyes, but nope, he wanted me to keep them open and look at him. Wow, he muttered, and all of a sudden I became a guinea pig, as he called his colleagues in from their own offices. When all were assembled, he announced that they were going to practice the Dick's Hallpike manoeuvre, and everyone had a go at bending me up and down, turning my head, and exclaiming at the nystagmus I displayed as my eyes began flicking rapidly back and forth, trying to track the imagined movement my brain was detecting. It was only when I asked for a bucket to be sick into that the circus act came to an end. By now, I had decided that the next time we dived together, I was taking a pair of pruning shears so I could cut his airlines, but I was now firmly in the hands of the medical profession. I wandered back to the squadron and sat down with the boss to explain the situation and wipe my name off the program board. Before long, I had an appointment with a civilian ENT specialist in town, which was a godsend. Not being in the military, he was considerably more discreet than I was used to, and when I got back to the UK, nobody ever mentioned my vertigo ever again. I was put through a battery of tests, which included 
wearing electrodes on my head, finding my ears and nose with my eyes shut, walking around in the dark, balancing on one foot, and having water of different temperatures squirted into my ears, to name just a few. It took a week or so, but the conclusion was that I had been hit by a virus. The Epstein-Barr virus was the likely culprit, which chose to attack the balance organs in one of my ears. It's a common enough virus, but had got through my defences, probably because I had allowed myself to become overly fatigued, running a major exercise the previous month. Long days, short nights, and the pressure had apparently taken its toll. I was prescribed complete rest, and several bottles of an old-fashioned health tonic full of vitamins, calcium, sodium, manganese, snake oil, and a little alcohol. The virus had already done its damage, and there was no fixing that. All I had to do was to get back to full fitness and let my brain deal with the situation, which apparently usually took about three months. The brain is an amazing thing. Not just mine, but everyone's. Damage the inner ear on one side, and the conflicting signals lead to vertigo, but given enough time, the brain rebalances and works out how to cope with the new situation. Two months later, I felt back to normal, or at least as normal as I would ever be, and bored beyond belief. The RAAF doctors wanted to keep me on the ground for another month or so, but my boss, JK, bless his little cotton socks, unlike the RAF, had the power to override the medical advice. So, in the last few days of May, two months almost to the day when I thought my career was disappearing down a whirlpool, I clambered into a two-seater with Mukai in the back for a somewhat curtailed shakedown trip when Bitching Betty told us that we had engine low oil pressure, so we came home on one engine. We tried again the next day and then the boss sat in the back to put me through my paces and declared me fit-ish. I had to fly several more trips with a safety pilot in the back, which included Wood Duck, of recent Plane Tales fame, who was then a pilot officer, with a rank stripe so thin it became invisible at three paces. Now a group Captain Air Attaché, he's covered in gold braid. By now I should have been coming to the end of my time in Oz, but my tour had been extended by six months. Whoopee! And I had my blue letter. About halfway through my time with 77 Squadron, I'd elected to take the C exam, a prerequisite for promotion above Flight Lieutenant. Had I been promoted earlier, I couldn't have been given my Australian exchange tour, but once I was in country, I was safe. Having deviously passed the exam, thanks partly to an eight-hour time difference and a good friend back home, I was now eligible, and on the next raft of promotions, I was gazetted and duly received the formal blue letter informing me of my advancement. The London Gazette isn't so much a newspaper as an official journal of the government, 
around since 1665. It's the oldest continuously published newspaper in the UK and contains such information as the royal assent to bills of parliament, granting of honours, or in my case, promotion of officers of the armed forces, hence being gazetted. There wasn't a job for me in Australia at that rank, so I became a sort of squadron leader without portfolio. Friends of, but not quite so chummy with my old mates as I now ranked as a senior officer. They took this in their stride, and in a perfectly Australian way, dubbed me Sir Plus, or more formally, Sir Plus to Requirements. We carried on with the exciting flying that had been a constant throughout my time on the 77. We spent some time dropping high-explosive Mark 82 500-pounders and Mark 84 2,000-pounders, the largest of the Mark 80 series general-purpose bombs, that came off the pylons with a reassuring clang and lurch so you knew it had definitely dropped. Then we had a month brushing up on air defence tactics before deploying up to Darwin for Exercise Kangaroo 89 then the biggest Australian military peacetime exercise since World War II. On the way, we stopped at Townsville to refuel, and on departure, I got the shock of my life. Climbing out, I suddenly heard the dulcet tones of bitching Betty, announcing, Engine fire left! Engine fire left! Immediately followed by a more shocking warning of, Engine fire right! Engine fire right. My eyes immediately went to the mirrors, expecting to see a massive smoke trail coming from the rear of the aircraft. Meanwhile, Betty went on to inform me of an APU fire. APU fire. Followed by bleed air warnings, both left and right, low fuel, hot computers, low altitude, and flight control failures. By now, the penny had dropped, and the familiar sequence of warnings was apparent. The voice alert test had somehow activated itself. I waited patiently for Betty to read through the list and stop, but no such luck, as she started again from the beginning. All the time this was going on, I couldn't hear a thing over the radio, as the warning system audio had priority and I was transmitting blind, hoping that something was going out. I turned back and flew a visual recovery to Townsville, entered the circuit and landed after some kind controller fired a green flare across my nose. Shutting down, the engineers wandered over to assist, but try as they might, they couldn't replicate the fault. After 20 minutes of constantly yelling at me, Betty was now sulking. We all assumed that the shutdown had reset the warning computer and it had rebooted without any errors, which, on my subsequent transit to Darwin, was confirmed. The exercise proved to be great fun, with plenty of combat against F-16s, tanking from KC-130 Hercules and a good downtown hotel to live in.
Back home at Willie, we had another month of live firing. This time it was air-to-air gunnery against a banner towed by a Learjet, which I've already talked about in a previous tale, but then we tried strafe from a dive angle of 30 degrees, which was new, before pooping off some missiles. Having lots of previous experience of that sort of thing, I ended up acting as the flying range safety officer, accompanying the firing aircraft to ensure that the square of ocean nominated as the firing range was clear of ships and safe to use, as well as confirming that the firer was correctly locked to the drone's flare or radar reflector and not the drone itself. Uh, An expensive mistake. It was quite a taxing job, first sweeping the full volume of the range for ships and aircraft in time for the drone to arrive, and then formating closely on the firer to make sure that the ranges that they were giving corresponded to the towed decoy and not the Jindavik before authorising the launch. Watching the sidewinders and sparrows leap off the firing hornets, it was always a tremendous sight as the ordnance streaked away, accelerating to over Mach 2 in a few aircraft lengths and then disappearing off into the distance. As the weeks counted down and I got closer and closer to my departure date, I was faced with a dilemma. When it came time to head home, my squadron was going to be in Malaysia on our regular deployment and I should really have been there with them. But that would have left Jilly at home to pack our belongings, clean our married quarter and do the formal march out inspection and then head back to the UK halfway around the world with two small boys all on her own. As she had so many times in our marriage, she tackled the tasks ahead of her with determination whilst I set off north. It turned out she did a lot more, of course. Having arrived in the UK before me, she got herself from the transport base at RAF Brides Norton over to our new posting at RAF Coningsby, where she dealt with the bureaucracy who informed her that there was no accommodation. She finally accepted a quarter at the nearby RAF Cranwell, argued her way into one of an appropriate size, and moved in. I, on the other hand, was heavily involved in my swan song, flying copious amounts of combat and low-level strike missions, which often included dropping ordnance on a range built on a small island called Song Song. A couple of things to talk about here. First, I was hit by lightning during a high-level transit in cloud back to our base at Butterworth. The strike knocked out my radar, which I'd been using to keep position on our leader since we'd entered cloud in a trail formation and were now keeping station with the radar. That gave him the problem of how to keep his formation safe and separated since I couldn't see anyone. We had a lead who was working up, so I took it upon myself to negotiate a new level to stay safe and manoeuvred until I had a good degree of separation behind the formation. They landed back at Butterworth, but by the time I got onto the instrument approach, there was another thunderstorm over the airfield and I was getting a bit tight on fuel. 
The rain was so fierce, beating down on the canopy, that I couldn't hear air traffic. But anyway, at 200 feet over the lights, all I could see were more lightning bolts pounding the ground around me and a wall of water. I went around, climbing and turning onto a downwind heading, when I popped out of the side of a huge Q-Nim into clear blue air and bright sunshine. Reluctant to re-enter Dante's Inferno, I set course for the International Civilian Airport on the island of Penang, about 14 miles away, and plopped down there. Half an hour after diverting, a little convoy of military vehicles brought our engineers over to have a look at the aircraft. The lightning had entered through the radome, flashed around the cockpit a bit, including leaping through the stick on my right arm, which tingled and went a bit numb, before departing through the right tailplane, mangling part of the carbon fibre into a floppy, feathery mess of graphite fibres. Sengo, the senior engineering officer, said I could fly at home as it was, so long as I kept it slow. The boys stuck some fuel in it and off I went, landing without further incident. After its little sulk, even the radar fired up. I mentioned our bombing range on the island of Songsong Song because when we used it, we had to provide a pilot from the squadron to take command of the facility for a week and act as the range safety officer. The guys who did all the work were a party of Royal Malaysian Air Force troops commanded by a sergeant. Song Song was quite remote and a real tropical island, so with my chaps in tow and a big box of rations, I started the day-long journey via minivan, two ferry boats and the official Malaysian Air Force launch, which we used to chase off local fishermen and take us to another island nearby which sported some accommodation. I didn't have much to do except sit in a wooden tower overlooking the range targets, drink tea made five times a day by the chaps, and man the radio, clearing our aircraft in and passing them their scores. The best bit was suffering several times a day the low-level passes everyone made over the range hut before departing back to Butterworth. I'd taken a boombox out with me and played a mixtape of suitable beat-up music over the radio for them, from the Dambusters March to the Top Gun theme, to accompany these amazing flypasts. The best bits were after we finished up work for the day and returned to our billets on Pulau Bidan, about five miles away. There I enjoyed chatting to the Malay chaps, eating my meals with them and together watching the sun set on our little tropical island. Afterwards I would sit with a book, listening to the hiss of the paraffin lamps, whilst always on guard for the huge Asian monitor lizards who delighted in rummaging through our garbage at night and could be heard all round the building. Then the fateful day came for my final flight. I see it was a mission to bounce a formation of two Hornets and two Malay F5 Tiger IIs. The boys had decked my aircraft out with a suitable decoration since my own beloved A21-4 had been left back at Willy. After another fabulous afternoon of flying, I was given carte blanche to beat up the airfield 
but it was with a heavy heart that I whistled over the detachment headquarters and pulled up into the circuit to land. 48 hours later, and 30 degrees centigrade lower, I was back in Blighty to rejoin the long-suffering Jilly, in time for Christmas and to start my conversion course onto the F3 Tornado. I was back in the real world, and my heart was heavy with sadness at leaving Australia. I also had the words of advice from my many Australian friends still ringing in my ears. Remember, the tornado banks as if to turn. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy Show. And if you want to find out all about that, then please pop over to AirlinePilotGuy.com. We've more than 300 Plain Tales for you to listen to now. So if you'd like to keep us going and add a few more, why not leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice? We'd be very grateful. Thanks and thanks for listening. Thank you.